Hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast. We have a special show for you uh, today. We are here at the Blake Center, which is connected to Hillsdale College, and we're in Summers, Connecticut. And I'm joined by Tom Price, who's uh, a regular on the show, and a friend that we're going to let introduce himself in a minute. He's been with us before. He's back, and he's going to lay some spiritual warfare on us, I guess, <laughs> something like that. Anyway, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest. I'm not in the Pacific Northwest now. I'm here in Connecticut at my other house. And I've done a number of things, written some books, been a professor of philosophy, yada, yada, yada. Anyway, that's enough about me. How about you, Tom? Tom Price. I live here in Connecticut, so it's not so much of a travel for me. Get, get closer there. Get closer. And eat the mic. That's eat what the you... mic. Okay. <laughs> Tom Price. <laughs> I teach systematic theology. Uh, Christian ethics, philosophy, and a few other things. And one of the places is Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And we're joined by Christian Cuthbert. Christian, tell us a little bit about yourself uh, in case folks didn't hear that other episode that you were with us on. Uh, maybe, you know, a couple of people down yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, the few people that don't have it earmarked on their, on their computers. Right. Well, I'm Christian Cuthbert. I'm senior pastor of Union Church right in Vernon, Connecticut, just down the road. Uh, I also teach uh, at Gordon-Conwell as an adjunct professor of church history, and uh, I am a researcher for Jonathan Edwards, his life, his thought, his ministry, and how he interacted with the rest of the 18th century. Now, you have a book out uh, that's a really fun book. Tell us about that book. It's Jonathan Edwards and his... Is uh, wartime sermons. Wartime sermons. Yeah. Yes. So now you, you've got a background in the services. You were in the army. Was it, it's the army, right? I don't uh, want to insult you because I know that the different <laughs> branches hate to be referred to uh, as you know a member of a different branch. Uh, yeah, I'm contractually obligated to make fun of whatever other branch <laughs> you mentioned. So right, right, yeah. So Navy, Air Force, Marines—they're all in play, Marine, uh, but the army is uh, off limits. Uh, well, I don't know why it would be on. on uh, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, the only branch of the service. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I appreciate the Air Force. They give us a ride to, you know, go fight a war. And right, right. I'm sure the Navy does something. Uh, <laughs> that's right, right. Anyway, uh, if you're out there and you're, in, you know, a veteran of one of the other branches of the uh, services here in the United States, uh, please forgive us. But anyway, uh, so what are we talking about today? You have a paper that you're going to be presenting in Belgium, right? Yes, at the Jonathan Edwards Congress in Leuven. Uh, now that's fascinating. Yeah, Jonathan that's Edwards a... Congress in Belgium. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So is it just Americans going over to Belgium? or is No. It... Interestingly, when the Jonathan Edwards Center at Yale opened up its website, they kept track of which countries accessed the site. And the countries that had a lot of visitors, they looked for places to put global Jonathan Edwards centers. Cool. So there are Jonathan Edwards centers in Budapest, in Brazil, mm. in Australia, in Tokyo, mm. in South Africa, uh, three here in the U.S. Uh, they are everywhere. And every four years, we come together from all over the world and talk about why Jonathan Edwards is important for Brazilians and important for yeah, Japanese yeah. people. Well, that, that, that's something hmm. worth thinking about because like when you go down to Yale, I mean, most folks, when they think about Yale today, they don't think Jonathan Edwards. No. No, they think no. about crazy, you know, protesting people uh, at the law school or something like that. Yeah. But if you go to Yale, Edwards is everywhere. 
I mean, you go into the bookstore, his image is all over the place. You go, well, there's a college. Uh, yeah, at, Jonathan Edwards College. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and they're the ones funding the a lot of the book. Uh, at least they were the ones in line with a lot of the publishing of his books. There was a, that whole line. Well, the Jonathan Edwards Center is where the books are published out of. Um, I also have a YouTube channel on the life and thought of Jonathan Edwards in this past season. Season two has not come out yet, but I was able to get into the master's house at Jonathan Edwards College uh. and film his desk. Oh, yeah. Uh, so the, not the replica. Yeah, not, no, the, not one the replica. That's, that's right. There's a replica <laughs> but in the real one. Field, the, yeah. the, the real one with a lot of his first editions in there, the original Badger portraits of Jonathan Edwards and his wife Sarah is there. And yeah. that was, for an Edwards nerd like me, that, that was a special moment. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Now, now you've actually worked with the documents, like the original documents. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, you know, when we talk about original documents, we think about, you know, ancient, you know, texts. But these are, well, they're ancient for, from an American point of view. Yeah. What, what was, what's it like working with the, the like the, the, the documents that, you know, the holy hands of Jonathan yeah, Edwards have I actually tell touched. You, ancient writers had much better handwriting than <laughs> yeah. Edwards. That yeah, right. was something that took me by surprise. Yeah. So for this collection of wartime sermons, I transcribed and edited a handful of sermons that previously had not been published before. And that took me a lot longer to translate, to not translate. Translate. Yeah, to transcribe. <laughs> yeah. Translate from English into English. <laughs> well, and he had his own shorthand and he had yeah, symbols. Okay. Oh, there was this one okay. sermon, um, to travail and fight as soldiers to war. And when I transcribed it, I transcribed T-R-A-V-E-L, because those are the letters on there, travel. Well, my uh, the director of the Edward Center says, well, no, that's actually travail. I'm like, how in the world is that travail? T-R-A-V-E-L. He goes, oh, no, he was actually using the old French for travail. And I'm thinking, was I supposed to know old French before I did this? I, just, I skipped yeah, old now, French Now, class. most people today would just think uh, he just didn't know how to spell. Yeah. But, but actually, he yeah. was like, this is like 3D chess or 4D. Yeah. He, he's just way ahead of everybody. He is moving in and out of languages it's such a, a rate that sometimes um, spellings bleed into one another. Yeah. What, lang what languages besides, of course, the classical languages would he be? Would he have been working with? You mentioned the French. I did not run into any German loan words or German mm -hmm. words in there, but I'm sure he had an awareness of at least some of the technical vocabulary yeah. of German. Uh, but it was mainly Latin and Greek right. and uh, a little bit of Hebrew that he threw in there. I th you know, even secular scholars concede that he might be America's greatest mind. Yeah, the Encyclopedia Britannica, I have not checked recently, but for the longest time, described Edwards as the, uh, the most brilliant theologian uh, or philosopher America has ever produced. Mm, right. And I think that, they, um, I think that holds. Yeah, that yeah holds. well, it's pretty... Uh, dense material if you're you're reading in the original edwards and not yeah. a paraphrase <laughs> right well great stuff so what are you going to talk about there uh to our belgian friends oh uh well when i was on the podcast last time it was before i came out with my collection of wartime sermons yeah. they have uh they have come out and uh, uh i really tackled that project first because i needed source material to do a monograph on edwards edwards at war so now that I've developed my own source material, I can actually go forward and write the book I was originally trying to write. Okay. <laughs> so when I go to Belgium, I am trying to focus in on three different pastoral practices that Edwards engaged in, preaching, prayer, and publication. And a lot of Edwards biographers treat the wars that were going on during his lifetime, uh, War of Jenkins' Ear, 
War of Austrian Succession, those were either in the Caribbean or the continent. Those wars came over to the colonies in King George's War in 1744, and then later on the Seven Years' War, French and Indian War. Biographers treat those as just kind of background and uh, landscape. But if we can think of it this way, can we imagine no matter what a Ukrainian pastor is going to preach this Sunday, that it is uh, completely disconnected from the war that's surrounding them? I I think that Mm. would stretch our imaginations to make that claim. Edwards was preaching to a congregation that was in the middle of a battlefield, Mm. and many of his parishioners went to fight in these wars. Mm -hmm. He is trying to take care of his congregation under a threat. So, so how close did the wars actually come to this part of the... Oh, right into Northampton. Yeah, uh, yeah. 1747, mm. uh, August 20-something, 1747, Edwards preaches a sermon because a man, Elisha Clark, who lived in Southampton, which was a parish of Northampton at the time, mm. he was uh, killed by a, a native sortie, and mm-hmm. um, Edwards used the opportunity. It's, it's interesting to... Uh, to see his pastoral counseling skills at work. He basically mm-hmm. says, well, this happened because we were not as, as diligent in our spiritual duties. <laughs> that would not go over. That wouldn't go yeah. over today. That's right. <laughs> well, today. Back then, it was a fairly common... Yeah, sure. Uh, fairly they actually believed that God was doing things in the world and, and yeah. sin mattered and God judged. And, yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. So now, of the three matters that you note or the three practices, I think we all know about his preaching mm-hmm. and his publishing. What about this prayer life? Uh, what can we say about that? Yeah, his prayer life are, is treated a couple of different ways. Uh, a scholar named Don Whitney has written a really kind of cool book about Edwards and solitude and his personal mm-hmm. devotional mm-hmm. practice. But that is more of a private devotional practice. And Edwards did not believe that devotion was merely private. Right. So prayer became one of his ways in which he participated in what was called the Protestant interest. That uh, Edwards lived in Northampton, the outer orbit of the British Empire, as about as backwoods, yeah, you know, as you far away get. from London as, yeah. as you can get. <laughs> right. But, you know, he really thought he was participating in this Protestant interest, this advance of the Protestant empire. And one of the ways in which he did that was through prayer. Mm-hmm. So in his uh, humble attempt, which was a, a treatise he wrote in 1747, to encourage Northampton and the colonies to participate in a concert of prayer that the Scottish had, had developed. Mm. And I don't know if this is the first instance of a concert of prayer, but it was a very early mm. one. And his rationale is, hey, look, if we don't pray, then God's kingdom that is the Protestant kingdom, yeah, yeah. can't advance. Right. So in his sermon previous in 1745, before going to Louisburg, Edward says, look, we have to pray. Battles are won and lost by the direction of the smoothbore musket shots. Hmm. Smoothbore is not rifled. So yeah, right. when it comes out, it knuckles. No way no, to tell yeah, right. where it goes. Have you ever seen a knuckleball in baseball? Yeah. yeah. yeah uh, right. The effective range of a smoothbore musket is about 25 beaners. Mm. So you have to get pretty close to hit what you're, la- what mm. you're aiming at. And Edwards recognized that one stroke of the sword, one movement of the musket ball can turn an entire battle. And those things can only be controlled by God. Mm-hmm. Therefore, we need to pray in order to solicit God's 
God's a uh, help in fighting this battle for us. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, you know, that's that's a remarkable thing to consider. You know, even in our own time, where uh, we, because of Baconian science, feel as though um, we can master the world and yeah. make bullets go where we want them to go and yeah. so forth. Um, I wonder what Edwards would have said to us, um, or maybe he did say something. Maybe he looked down the corridor of time and anticipated the world that, that we live in. Is there anything you, you oh, can say about that? Oh, he did so with scary accuracy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, an Edwards scholar friend of mine, a guy named Matt Everhard, has this fun YouTube video about how Edwards predicted the internet. <laughs> no way. And, yeah, and I wish I had memorized this passage for this moment. Yeah. But uh, uh, This reminds me of Aristotle. Aristotle <laughs> and Nicomachean Ethics predicts... Uh, Robotics, but anyway. (laughs) Edwards talks about a day when communication in between cultures, in in between continents will be so fast that the gospel will be able to proliferate like never before. Hmm. But he said, that will also be an avenue through which sin will proliferate as never before. Right. Right. And... He was he was pretty accurate with that one. Yeah, yeah. I think I think even in the, his philosophical works on the freedom of the will, he understood the trajectory of what happens to a will conceive the way when when it's wrongheaded. Mm-hmm. So he really foresaw where the where the fruit of like radical volunteerism volunteerism has ended up. I mean, where we basically our choice becomes definitive of reality. His work was really trying to address that at the earliest stages of it, as yeah. it was coming in through Locke. He saw it even in Locke, I think, which is similar to, yeah. to what uh, well, Schindler does. Yeah, well, let's think a little bit about, um, you know, we talked before we started the show a little bit about, um, you know, kind of his range. Um, what were some of the things that he was reading? Interesting. Volume 26 of the Yale Letterpress Edition is what's called his catalog of books. Mm. Edwards did us a huge solid by keeping a pretty accurate list and, and an annotated list at times of what it was that he read. Uh, so because of that, your question might be a little broad. Uh, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, he, he was reading Locke. He was reading Newton. Yeah. Actually... Um, 1718, Edwards was at the collegiate school, which is now Yale. He was studying in Weathersfield under his yeah. cousin Elisha Williams when the Connecticut State Legislature mm. um, combined all three campuses, the Saybrook campus, the New Haven campus, and the Weathersfield campus into New Haven. The agent for the colonies in London, a guy named Jeremiah Dummer, mm. had collected a, a donation of books, 700 books, and sent them to the collegiate school that was housed at Saybrook. And these books were the cutting edge of mm. British philosophy, Locke, Newton, those, yeah. those sorts of characters, uh, Shaftesbury, Hutchison. Mm. Now, when the Connecticut State Legislature combined it into New Haven, they were removing the books from Saybrook, and the citizens of Saybrook did not want them to be removed. So they sent the Justice of the Peace to stop it, and it ended up in a, a gun battle. It's <laughs> now known as the Battle of the Books. Oh, man, this is, uh, this is beautiful. So <laughs> when those books got to New Haven and Edwards got to New Haven, he was able to read these books that were not available at Harvard. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and one of the amazing things about Edwards is reading this British moral thought, hmm. he was able to present traditional Reformed ideas using the discourse of this new enlightenment philosophy. And that marriage gave 
reform thought a uh, staying power, which I think still continues to today. Interesting. interesting. Yeah, and, and I think he, I mean, compare, compare him to the, the lines of kind of reform thinking that, that ended up, you know, end up where we, we are today in many ways. He's very different. I mean, here's oh, someone yeah. who is not afraid of the use of reason, um, sees it as a, a fundamental endowment and gift um, in ways that, you know, certain strands of our, our, our own traditions wouldn't, wouldn't find healthy. And of course, this is someone engaging the Enlightenment's rationalism yeah. head on. Um, you hear someone who knows the rigors and insights of idealist thinking um, and the significance of it. And I mean, he, he, this is someone who was not afraid to retrieve classic virtue ethics and, yeah. and, and converse in it, where you'll see some lines of reform thinking see that as, you know, Romanization, you know? Yeah, I think there's one aspect of Edward's thought that makes him unique, and that is his incorporation of the idea of beauty. Yes. And, yeah. So yeah. even in his testimony, he talks about reading First Timothy one seventeen. Now unto the King, immortal, eternal, only wise God. He probably read that passage many times before, but one day he read it and he says, and then something came into my soul as if diffused through it, this glory of God that mm. I might be wrapped up in Him, and it. Other than the confessions, it might be some of the most beautiful writing outside of the New Testament. Uh, so let's dig into that a little bit, because when it comes to the subject of beauty, uh, the Reformed have not distinguished themselves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I've seen other people outside the Reformed tradition note that Edwards on the subject of beauty is really yeah. great. So a couple things. Uh, when we're talking about beauty with regard to Edwards, what are we getting at? Uh, what, what's the aesthetic, so to speak? Yeah, Edwards talks in terms of of uh, divine excellency. Mm -hmm. He talks in terms of harmony and proportion mm -hmm. and fitness. Yeah. Uh, he sees, well, if we want to wade into his philosophy a little bit, he thinks that, um, uh, that benevolence to being in general is kind of the key mm -hmm. to the Christian life. In other words, God created this world a certain way and to operate a certain way. And the more we recognize how God designed the world and act in accordance to it, the more beautiful yeah. that is because yeah. it, it it resonates, it harmonizes with God himself. And that so is are we thinking strictly in terms of con conceptual categories? Are we talking about visual uh, or, you know, oral, you know, kind of sen sensation, you know, and, and, and sort of perceiving order and harmony in those as well? I mean, how, how, I, guess, I guess if someone were, let's say someone was inspired and it was a painter, yeah, what would that? Um, what would the painter do with Edwards and his insight? I hope some painter takes it on someday. Yeah, uh, yeah. I because Edwards is a little quirky here because of his Puritan heritage. Sure, that's what I'm getting at. Yeah, <laughs> well, I think, that that was yeah, that was the. I think he would uh, have a hard time with the creative arts as we know it today. I don't think he would be impressed by Bernini. <laughs> or that yeah. which, even as a Reformed Protestant, I'm impressed by Bernini, right? Yeah. Uh, but Edward's idea of beauty was so much broader than what we would consider art today. Um, so he's thinking about the creation. Talking about creation. Uh, when Edwards has this new sense, this uh, new apprehension, as he calls it, one of the first things he does as a young Christian when he was about 
1819, and starts to write a number of scientific treatises mm-hmm. of atoms, of light rays. And in this, he presents God as the one that's controlling the tiny parts of nature, that nature only finds its meaning through this personal God that intervenes in this world in the same way that God intervened in his life. And I think that's that's a part of the paper I'm presenting. A lot of people assume Edwards developed this grand theological vision through his 13 hours of study in his, his library. And his study absolutely confirmed it and drove it. But Edwards' grand theological vision was rooted in his own personal experience of conversion. And I don't think you can understand Edwards without understanding what conversion did to Edwards. So let's just dive into that a yeah, little bit. It's, and a quick, quick note is, I mean, when you really look at certain figures in, in theological tradition where beauty became prominent, you see a ver- very similar thing happen. Yeah. It's not first driven by the kind of just adopting this particular philosophy. It is driven by what something that happens in their encounter with the yeah. beauty that they have seen. You, you hear the early fathers when they talk of divine light, which, which Edwards picks up on oh, the yeah. theme of light, the theme of glory, the theme of the bliss of God's own life, yeah. and our ability to touch that. And this is kind of where the reflective, the prayerful, and, you know, you could even call it the mystical, kind of came together and drove these big theological visions. And it sounds like Edwards was very much another one along those lines. Yeah, um, Edwards was changed and changed permanently because of this, what he refers to in his famous sermon, divine and supernatural light Mm. immediately imparted to the soul. Mm. And it kind of set Edwards up for a crisis later. So in Northampton in 1734, 1735, he sees his personal experience of God intervening in his life and changing him as being projected onto his congregation in what's called the Little Revival. And it lasted about a year, 18 months, and then it waned. And Edwards was just confused because the changes that he saw in his congregation weren't permanent. Mm. They kind of devolved back into their old habits. And Edwards saying, well, look, no, that can't happen. When God changes you, you are different. So then he has to come up with a broader theological vision to make sense of this. Mm-hmm. And he preaches a series of sermons in March to August of 1739 that was posthumously published as the history of the work of redemption. Mm-hmm. And what Edwards did for nature after his conversion, he now does for history. Yeah. What he did for space, he's now doing for time. And he says that God is moving all of human history towards its appointed end. And all of the work in our world is either preparatory work or work that accomplishes it. Mm. And that is where my study of warfare comes in. Yeah, yeah. Because Edwards in this history of the work of redemption presents warfare as a preparatory work, whether it be the conquest of Canaan or what he calls the three great overturnings of Persia and Greece and Rome preparing for Christ or Constantine Mm. or the Reformation or what he calls these present bloody wars. Uh, that's actually from a humble attempt, not from history of the work of, of redemption, where he sees warfare as preparatory to the advance of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you don't often hear that connection made. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, in uh, evangelical circles today, uh, what could Edwards teach us about providence uh, as it relates to just what many people would consider secular history. Yeah. Um, 
Edwards, uh, using this Newtonian worldview, talked about the, the, the wheels of providence that are turning and are moving towards God's appointed end. Uh, every time I get a question like this, I use it as an excuse to tell a story about one of my favorite Edwards scholars, a guy named Jerry McDermott, who presented at the 2019 Edwards Congress at Yale on the happiness of the saints in heaven. Yeah, you were telling me about this the other day. Yeah, right, it's, right. and I look for every opportunity to tell this. <laughs> go for it, go for uh, it. <laughs> he presents this paper about how Edwards believed, even though he may not be able to find chapter and verse on this as a whole, he can, he can piece it together, that the saints who've gone before us are in heaven and they see what's going on here in the world and their happiness is tied to how this world is going. So after Jerry finishes his lecture, he opens up for questions and the most logical question comes, hand goes in the air and he says, okay, if the happiness of the saints in heaven are dependent on what's going on here on earth, how happy are the saints in heaven? (laughs) Are they kind of down today? (laughs) Well, yeah, you know, everyone chuckled at it. And, you know, Jerry's response was, was more than informative. It was beautiful. He said, the saints in heaven have never been happier. Because Edwards believed that everything that happens in this world, wars, pandemics, economic crises, everything, are tools that God uses Mm -hmm. to advance his kingdom. And he's bringing all things to its appropriate end. Now, we here on earth, we don't see what God's doing. We don't get to look behind the curtain. But the saints who are in heaven, they have Jesus Christ himself explaining to them, yeah, I know this looks scary, but this is why this has to happen. And they are more excited about everything we despair in than we could ever imagine. And that, that was a beautiful response. Yeah, that is. That yeah, is. It, it is fascinating. And of course, you, you do hear you know, that episode in Revelation where, you, where Jesus actually will open the scroll and then the meaning of history, the fullest yeah. sense, will, will unfurl. And he's the only one worthy to open it up and, and know yeah. it and show it. But it's interesting because on and, you know, some recent work I was doing with Augustine, especially in relationship to his political philosophy, is it was very strongly interpreted as well as basically instead of taking the, the life, you know, the spiritual life and going hiding in a monastery and practicing ascetic practices, the whole history of the world is basically one strong ascetic practice of forming the people of God. So mm. suffering is not... Right. It's it's a spiritual undergoing. Yeah. You're suffering a divine thing in a way, and it's formative in orienting the people towards the purposes of God rather than a, a setback. Yeah. Yeah. And so it sounds, you know, very strongly in that in that you know yeah, direction. Edwards would say that the cross is a necessary part of the Christian experience today. Yeah. Uh, Edwards didn't say this. Somebody said it. Who's not me? But that that is their theory as to why Christ retains his scars from the cross. Mm even in his resurrected body. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, what comes to my mind at this point is that uh, what we see in Augustine and, of course, Edwards is a pretty sophisticated and, I think, um, profound insight into history. When many contemporary preachers attempt something similar, it's pretty cringe, as the, <laughs> as the kids yeah. say. <laughs> <laughs> Any thoughts as to why that's so? I've got a theory, but I'd like to hear your thoughts. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, this is not a full explanation, but I think part of the problem is, is, is in the difference between Augustine and Edwards. Augustine saw the culmination of history as something that happens outside of history. 
that right now it's the city of God versus the city of man. And they are in, in this seemingly eternal struggle until history ends and God makes it right. Edwards actually saw um, the culmination of, of redemption is happening in history. It was posty, I'd say. It's yeah. a little bit closer to that, although yeah. we have to be careful yeah, taking we don't want to later up. categories, sure. reading sure. it back in Edwards. Yeah. Right. Um, but I think the temptation for a lot of preachers today of framing history in a way that supports personal conclusions has proven too great for mm-hmm. many. Mm-hmm. And uh, they are not, most contemporary preachers are not the sort that has given the same amount of investment into the the philosophy and the logic and the history mm-hmm. and right. all that that is required to develop a vision that is expansive enough to explain all of human history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have never preached on it myself. Yeah, uh, yeah I've not, <laughs> not attempted it. Yeah, yeah. but the, note the, the, the strong emphasis on the teleological nature of things and, uh, you know, coupled with a strong kind of view of sovereignty, oftentimes mm-hmm. camps don't see how those work, yeah. work together other than that you're just unfolding a script. And I think the profundity of being able to talk about the necessity of prayer the necessity of being oriented the right way yeah. is is key to understanding how those aren't kind of conflictual, but they're all part of of the whole. But it it is interesting. Say a little bit more about what he means by the redemptive and the teleological being fulfilled in history. Yeah, that's a um, that's a big question now because there's a little bit of a debate because Edwards is usually. Um, tagged as the post-millennialist. Mm-hmm. And there are several aspects of his thought that do fit very well with that. But there are some aspects that don't because that category didn't exist in Edwards' day. Yeah. Um, Edwards thought that redemption happened in history because the things that are going on in our world right now is a part of what God is doing to bring about its ultimate redemptive end, mm-hmm. uh, including at his time, War of Jenkins' ear, War mm-hmm. of Austrian succession, King George's war, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So, you know, related to that, um, it strikes me, you know, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, that he wasn't trying to uh, tell his his congregants this particular war fulfills this particular prophecy as oh, it's no. uh, described no. in Daniel or something <laughs> yeah. like that. No. But that, that's where most guys go today. Well, and uh, it's funny, I'm actually finishing a, a book on Daniel, which is completely <laughs> separate. And Tom alluded to this fact earlier. Even at the end of Daniel's visions, the angel always said, shut this up and seal it. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And then we, I believe that those visions that were shut up, the four weird beasts and the ram and the goat, that is what Jesus unseals in Revelation. Because he is the only one worthy enough to, to do, do that. Yeah. Uh, Edwards might go a little further than I would personally at at uh, explaining what God is doing in the here and now. Yeah. Um, and so he he literally read the book of Revelation with a newspaper in one hand. Yeah. Starting in 1722, yeah. he compiled this notebook called Notes on the Apocalypse. <laughs> and he would pull f- from all these newspapers... Chinese rebellions in Indonesia, all sorts of weird things to show how what is happening in the world right now is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy, specifically uh, Revelation 16 and the sixth vial. That was a huge thing for Edwards because he thought the sixth vial that talks about the drying up of the river Euphrates, 
referred to the drying up of papal resources. <laughs> uh, That's pretty good. Yep. It was robbing... There's a paper in there. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it was robbing the Pope of all these resources by which the anti-Christian king, kingdom could go forward. Yeah. And yeah. he saw war as preparatory. In other words, when, when New England went to war with New France... New England had to conquer Quebec and Montreal before the gospel could go through because right now they are trapped in this Romish, Popish deception. So when it comes to how I address publishing in this paper, uh, I, I, Tom, I'm afraid I'm going to disappoint with this. I'm, I'm going to disappoint a lot of people at this yeah. conference with this because I make the argument uh, that Edward's treatises that he wrote in the 1750s in Stockbridge, Freedom of the Will, Original yeah. Sin, uh, dissertation concerning the end of the world, nature of true virtue. I think I'm missing one, uh, religious affections. Oh, that little one there. Yeah, that no one knows yeah, about. yeah. That's so easily <laughs> forgotten, right? Uh, he wasn't necessarily engaging in theological polemics. Yeah. If you read it against the war that was going on around him, mm-hmm. What he is trying to do is he is trying to destroy these intellectual fortresses Mm -hmm. so that the gospel can go forward. Edwards never shouldered a rifle. He never gave an order on a battlefield. Mm -hmm. But uh, another project I'm involved in right now is I'm one of the editors for the Jonathan Edwards Study Bible that's coming out Mm -hmm. in 2025. That may be the only study Bible I want. Well, uh, I have worked very hard on it, so I, I hope so. Uh, I was the one that got stuck with the short straw in doing Revelation. Oh, wow. Uh, oh, wow. Which, truthfully, I really enjoyed. Yeah, yeah. And in his commentary on Revelation 11, this battle that's going on there, he talks about intellectual battle, intellectual warfare. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that you can only understand what Edwards is trying to do when you get a sense of the French and Indians that are, are, yeah. are, well, Edwards at the time was in Stockbridge. He was a pastor of the, of the Mohican Indians. And that summer of 1755, he preached uh, three different wartime sermons. And in August, almost the entire town's young men, the, the, the native young warriors marched off to war uh, under Colonel Ephraim Williams. And this was right after Braddock's defeat at Fort Duquesne out in Pittsburgh. And the same French regiment that defeated Braddock uh, thought that, hey, if we act fast, we can kick the British out of the colonies. The French had Quebec, the French had Pittsburgh, the French had New Orleans. If they could close that circle, they could shove us back into the ocean. So that same regiment... Uh, took Fort Niagara, Fort Oswego, and as they were marching towards what is now Fort Ticonderoga, uh, Edwards' congregation, these Mohican Indians, faced this same regiment in battle. Uh, September 8th, 1755, the Battle of Lake George, which was referred to as the greatest battle in American history up to World War II. And I only learned about it about a year ago. Uh, And they defeated these French so these Mohican Indians are absorbing Edwards' kind of martial view of the world hmm. and carrying that into battle for Edwards. So even though Edwards was not at the Battle of Lake George, he, he, he was fighting his own battles there against 
the rejection of original sin against the great noise of Arminianism and freedom mm-hmm. of the will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm afraid when I get to Belgium, a lot of people sitting, a lot of other scholars are sitting there that have written books on these great treatises and might, might conclude that I'm trying to tell them that everything they've written is garbage. No, that's not, <laughs> not what I'm trying to communicate, but I'm just trying to give a broader context to it. Well, the, the, you know, what you're addressing right now, uh, I think for most of our listeners and I think Americans in general is just a very fuzzy period in our history. So, you know, there's just not a lot of, I think, appreciation for what was occurring at that time. Now, I know I've got a a home down in Tallinn. Tallinn is, um, one of the older communities in Connecticut. And if you go to the city hall, they have the list of the war dead, Mm -hmm. you know, from, and it begins with the French and Indian wars and it's the longest list. I think that's the thing that just is just striking about it. You know, you look at that and you say, wow, more people, you know, people from Tallinn died there than in World War II or the Civil War even. It's a remarkable thing. Yeah, it's it's a sad thing because the war, the war of Spanish succession, Queen Anne's War, um, Dummer's Wars of the 1720s, King George's War, fascinating, fascinating stories in which warfare was being carried out not on a distant continent. Yeah, not it's on 20, 20 miles down the road. Yeah, it's right here. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, it's never covered in any history class. And yeah. Great opportunity for an academic like me to right. yeah, write a book. Yeah. But, <laughs> right, right. So we've talked about preaching. Uh, we've talked about prayer. We've talked a little bit about his publishing. What are, the, what are some of the things that you th- would take from, you know, this particular talk that you're going to give in Belgium to present in, in, in a more sort of accessible way to, say, your fellow pastors, uh, some of the things that maybe you could take away from, from Edwards on these three things. Absolutely. Uh, I think, like, I apologize if everything I do goes back to his conversion. Right? <laughs> That's all right. Uh, For evangelicals, we should be concerned about that. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but Edwards kind of breaks the mold of evangelicalism and showing how the thing that God did in the heart never stayed in the heart. It was something that was lived out in his congregation. It was something that was lived out in his community, in his colony, and th- throughout the ends of the earth. And uh, on that point, um, you mentioned impartation. And again, in theological language and in Protestant language, that sometimes can be controversial because you did, the, the language of infusion or impartation tended to be looked at sometimes in conflict with imputation. Yeah. And he was very strong on the, the way in which the impartation and the way it's enacted in one's life. This is where the, the, you know, the strong emphasis on virtues and formation takes place. How does he see the significance of the formative Christian life or discipleship, I guess you could call it, connected with that impartation of, of divine? Yeah, uh, Edwards, a lot of people debate as to how reformed Edwards really was. And one of the reasons is, is because he's not using the same language yeah. as Turretin or von Master. He's using yeah. this Enlightenment discourse. I think another reason why people question this is because while he was a covenantal theologian, was it, while he was a federal theologian, I'm not sure that that's the discourse he was most comfortable with. He talked a lot about union with Christ as yeah, being right, the right. center yeah. of this. And when you look at traditional Reformed soteriology through the lens of union with Christ— 
it's not that the ortal salutis disappears. It's just not as important anymore. Yeah. That it, the ortal salutis is now not a chronological way, but it is just a way to categorize what's happening through union with Christ. Mm-hmm. And uh, Edwards uses the term deification a couple of yeah, times. Yeah, he does. Uh, That's what I was saying is he, he, I don't know his connection, like you said, he's coming at it from maybe the use of the retrieval and enlightenment language. But he is using language is very reminiscent of a lot of the early fathers. Even his vision of being is very... Yeah, well, this is another hard thing about Edwards is he's drawing from a breadth of sources that a poor little old scholar like myself has a hard time keeping up with. So he does have the early fathers. He does have Turretin and von Maastricht. He does have John Locke and Isaac Newton. He also has a guy, and if your listeners have never read this treatise, they should, uh, Henry Skugel's The Life of God and the Soul of Man. Edwards language matches that almost to the letter and it's not very long and you can probably find it free online somewhere. (laughs) Uh, He is drawing from so many different streams of thought to construct this grand vision. There's no one Edward scholar that can keep up with all of it. That's why we have Jonathan Edwards Congresses. So, 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 you know, we we need to wrap up here pretty quick. It's a short show today because we've got some other things to do here at the Blake Center. But um, getting back to my question, which we didn't actually, uh, or maybe you did address and and didn't do it. No, I'm pretty notorious for not actually asking (laughs) questions. So so what are some, just some takeaways uh, for a pastor? For a pastor, number one, to see to not limit personal conversion to individualism. Interesting. Yeah. To, in order to understand Edwards, you have to understand how his conversion personally was kind of projected onto his congregation and then projected onto the canvas of world history, right? Uh, as a pastor, yes, I do want to see people converted. I want to see their lives sure. change. Uh, but they are a part of God's grand design of redemption for history. And we need to find our place in it somehow, somewhere. Yeah. 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 Anything else? I mean, that's a pretty big. Well, that's, matter. that's so big. I don't know if I really did it justice <laughs> in, in, in talking about it like that. Um, but I guess that trickles down into the everyday things that I'm presenting in my paper, how prayer is not just giving God a laundry list of things that you want to see. It is participating in the advance of the kingdom. This Mm. is something we're doing with my church. I'm trying to challenge them. Mm. Hey, I'm a needy guy. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're all needy people and that's okay. But when was the last time you prayed for your Sunday school ministry and your youth ministry? And when's the last time you prayed for the church down the road? When's the Last time you prayed for the church in Zimbabwe or mm-hmm. Serbia, uh, prayer is a way that we can participate in what God is doing around the globe. Would it be too much to say that Edwards would ref- kind of think about prayer as a kind of uh, warfare? Yes, uh, I have no problem endorsing that. I, the <laughs> o- my only hesitation is confusing it with this fuzzy, feel-good, sure. pure flicks war room sort of approach to that. I get it, I get it. Yeah. Maybe, that's, maybe that's where we ought to end. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thanks a lot for being with us today, uh, Christian. It's great to, great to be with you I again. I appreciate any opportunity to talk about Edwards. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I know that a lot of folks out there who listen to us each week, and our audience is about 10,000. It's pretty, wow. pretty amazing. 
but uh, each Even week after this, or? Uh, well, we'll see. Okay. We, we get the we do we get, do get the analytics. <laughs> make it get a bump. <laughs> get the Edwards bump. <laughs> just, just keep my name <laughs> off. Have to check in, in Tokyo. Where, where are the other places <laughs> where you? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, we are, we are in over sixty countries now. Nice. Wow. Very so, nice. but anyway, uh, thanks uh, for a great conversation and. Uh, Thank you to the folks here, uh, for Delaban, and the folks at the Blake Center for letting us hang out in these cool digs, uh, this yeah. uh, replica of Monticello here in Connecticut, a little piece of Virginia right here. Yeah, right here. I feel it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, and thank you for listening to this uh, episode of the Theology Podcast. Uh, as many regular listeners know, we have a Patreon account, and people support us on an ongoing basis. And if you're one of those people, thank you very much. And if you'd like to join that uh, august uh, assembly, you may do so. Uh, there's a link in the show notes. We'll also put a link uh, in the show notes to the Blake Center and the work that's being done here. It's uh, great stuff. And uh, and anything, well, well, we'll link your book on Edwards' War Sermons and anything else awesome. you want us to, to, to make sure that folks know about. Hey, that'd be great. All right. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy another of our podcasts, The Good Life Podcast, featuring Matt Carpenter interviewing experts in their field about how their work contributes to the good life.